them. Let's start with a word of prayer. Lord God, our Father, we come to you now as we discuss finer points of theology. And Lord, last week we talked about how theology matters, and Lord, guide our discussion. May it be true to your word, may it be pleasing to you in the manner in which we conduct it, and um, may we constantly be thirsting for your truth, Lord, and, and your ways. In your name, amen. Well, this week we have, like I said, a lot of ground to cover, and so there will be a lot of things that I just hit briefly. I just want to start by thanking everyone for their discussion and comments um, throughout the week, throughout various times as, as people are um, just interacting with the concepts, and that's really important to do. There may be things that you're like, Pastor Ron, I, I don't think you got that right, and we can talk about that, and I'm open to that. And um, there may be things that you're like, man, I, I think you should have included that. I've heard that a few times, and um, just know that in three weeks, we have a lot that we can't include. So um, there is a little bit of, of leaving some things out. Um, there were things that I think the book did well that we left out. There were concerns that I would have that I'm leaving out. And so um, there's all across the board things that were um, just having to take a, an overall view, a, a quick picture, and just to remind ourselves of where we've been. In week number one, we looked at some of the foundation. Is it appropriate to um, evaluate fiction and, and the role of fiction in truth and um, we talked about the Bible being our source of truth and the ultimate source of truth. And then last week we looked at a number of the things that, that I felt the book got right and did really a really good job of explaining. And then we started into some of the concerns, which we're spending a little bit deeper time on, um, because that requires not only sharing the concern, but sharing some of the basis for that concern. And so this week we're going to finish up the concerns and um, that, that I would just give for discussion. I love the fact that it's creating theological discussion. I love that fact, because that means we're interacting with truths of God's word, and, and I know that there may be different people that think different things about theology, and, I, and that's great, because we talk about it and come back to God's word, and we um, find our solution in God's word. To go through these quickly, I don't actually have your handout. I'm hoping it matches my notes pretty closely, but we'll see. The first concern last week was um, we talked about a low, uh, what, what I felt was a, a low view of God's word throughout the books, book. And, and keep in mind that while I can only give you a couple quotes on these, these are, are things that as I read the book were broader themes. And, and in the book there was a broader theme of direct revelation still happening and um, and so that was something to talk about. Number two, which I think starts your, your notes today, is one of my concerns is what, what I would consider an unbiblical view of God. An unbiblical view of God. Now, it's, it's important to understand that, like I said in week number one, the author is, is focusing on specific truths. And so there are times that that focus may not allow him to focus on other truths, but it's important that we focus on that and that we read with discernment and realize that the picture of God there may be incomplete. And so when we look at an unbiblical view of God, perhaps an incomplete view of God in some cases, in some cases a view of God that I, I would argue would be contrary to the Bible. And so we'll look at those things. 
The first one is, is that um, the book tends to focus on one attribute of God to the exclusion of others. And as you've heard the summary of the book, which attribute would you say that would be? Love. It focuses on love, does a, does a marvelous job of, of that focus, but at the same time, it detracts from other characteristics of God and actually specifically says things like, that is not me. Um, one of the quotes that I use, which actually is a, a, the author quoted this man, no matter what God's power may be, the first aspect of God is never that of absolute master, the Almighty. It is that of the God who puts himself on our human level and limits himself. That's an important quote. It's an important thing to start to think through. What should our thought of God be? Should it be simply one that puts himself on a human level um, and limits himself, or should it be that of the Almighty? We'll look at scripture on that in, in just a moment. Another quote. Have you ever noticed that even though you call me Lord and King, I have never really acted in that capacity with you? Submission is not about authority, and it is not obedience. It is all about relationships of love and respect. In fact, we, speaking of the Godhead, are submitted to you in the same way. And so what, what the author is doing is, there's, there's many more quotes, and this has to do with more of a theme of the book. He's focusing on God's love as the, the overriding primary attribute of God. But we must be careful in anything we say and do to not limit God to simply one of his attributes. God is love, absolutely. He loves us, absolutely. But God is also righteous. God is also holy. And what's interesting is when we focus on one attribute, we actually lose the power of all. And so to, to focus that, that God is love and, and to, to minimize his righteousness and justice actually minimizes his love. It's important to understand that because love by itself isn't really love. Let, let me illustrate this. In, in growing up, if my dad would say he was proud of me for something, that meant a lot to me. But it meant a lot to me because he was willing to tell me when he wasn't proud of me. Now, if dad always told me he was proud of me, no matter what I did, you know, let's say I ran over the cat. Proud of you, son. <laughs> okay, bad example. Some of you are enjoying that one way too much. <laughs> it, it takes away from the meaning of that. Whereas if dad was willing to say, and, and he was, you blew it, son. That was wrong. Then his love and, and the fact that he was proud of me meant so much more. And so we must be careful coming to the book that, that we, we don't exclude those other attributes of God. You know, whether that was the author's intent in this case, I don't know, but that was the, the, the impression that came across. His love is not nearly as incredible without his justice holiness, and righteousness. One of the names for God in the Hebrew is El Shaddai. Does anyone know what that means? God Almighty. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> God Almighty is, and God revealed himself in his names, and one of the names he uses to reveal himself is God Almighty. It is true that God is love, but we also 
are to revere and be in awe of him. As much as we focus on relationship, we must be careful not to have that relationship be so familiar that we lose awe and respect. God is still God. God will never cease to be God. Let me read some verses. Proverbs 1.7 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 9.10 The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So we see right, right in, in God's Word that the fear of God, a reverence, and an awe for God is part of wisdom. In fact, it's the foundation of wisdom. It's the heart of wisdom. And so our first thought of God should be a fear of God. And in that context, and when I speak of that, I'm speaking of reverence and awe. In that context, the love of God is so incredible. It's so amazing. Because God Almighty loves me. And there's a richness to understanding his love when we understand all of his attributes. At the end of Job, a story of tragedy. Do you remember how God reveals himself? Where were you? Where were you when I created the earth? Where were you when I laid the foundation? And on and on, a whole chapter, actually two chapters, of where were yous. And, and in Job's tragedy, he's bringing him back to who God is. All of his attributes. That he is almighty. In tragedy, it is so comforting to know that God is almighty and that he loves me. We must not lose the reverence and awe. In fact, in almost every case where people in the Bible met God, other than the, the person of Christ who was in human form, when they, when they met God or encountered God, do you remember the typical response? I need to fall on my face, I'm going to die. That is a reverence and an awe that we must have for God. Without that, there is no relationship. It's vital. There's a number of other verses you can read there that I, we just don't have the time to, to get into about God's glory and who he is. Number two... I think the book attempts to bring God down to our level. And there is some truth to that in the incarnation. And understand a lot of these are, are, are things that have truth in them and that I understand what the author was trying to say, but we must be careful. He attempts to bring down God down to our level. And in the book, he not only does that with the incarnation, with Jesus coming in human form, but we have God the Father and the Holy Spirit in human form. And so we have the entire Godhead in human form down at our level. However, in John 4, 24, God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. John 1, 18, no one has ever seen God but God the one and the only who is at the Father's side who has made him known. And my challenge, I'm just going to say this briefly, is why did God only reveal Jesus in human form in God's word? 
And there's some specific reasons that deal with the awe and the reverence, but it also deals with faith. And as human beings, we, we struggle with faith. We struggle with things we can't grasp, that we can't hold on to. And so we want the entire Godhead in human form because it's easier to understand. But we must be careful of that because we, we, we can lose faith in that and the place of faith. Part of that is, is we see throughout a theme of God limiting himself to be in relationship with us. And the author is trying to go on Philippians 2 where, where it talks about God emptying himself to be incarnate, that Jesus did that. And there's a fascinating discussion that we could have about, okay, what does it mean to be incarnate Christ? Did Jesus make mistakes? Did Jesus get sick? I would say probably his human body could get sick. I would say he couldn't make mistakes because that would be an imperfection. That would be, that would be a, a failure in judgment to make a mistake, which, which Christ was incapable of. But we see a number of things where, where God limits to be in relationship with us, and there's, there's truth in that with Jesus Christ, but we must be careful not to go too far. You know, in, in the book, we have Jesus being clumsy and, and dropping a bowl in sauce and unable to catch a fish and um, just different things to make him more human, and, and, I, and I get where he's going with that, trying to help us realize Jesus was human. He really walked the earth. He really was tempted like we were. We are. And th that is all true. But then we have a situation where, where Mac is talking to the Godhead and he's describing his children and um, God is asking questions about his, his children. And Mac finally says, I, I don't get it. Don't you know everything? Don't you know everything? And God says this, we have limited ourselves out of respect for you. We are not bringing to mind, as it were, our knowledge of your children. As we are listening to you, it is as if it was the first time we have known about them, and we take great delight in seeing them through your eyes. I like that, reflected Max, sitting back in his chair. Think about that for a moment. Does God not remember so he can be in deeper relationship with us? Psalm 147.5, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. 1 John 3.20, whenever our hearts condemn us, for God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. And here again is, is, is my challenge to us. Do we want a God that knows everything or do we want a God that is finding out who we are for the first time. Which represents deeper relationship? I don't want to go home and have to describe my kids to my wife. That represents a lack of relationship. And in, in an effort to show relationship, it actually shows a lack of relationship. Because we, we are, the deeper our relationships are, the deeper that people know us and know who we are. And in relationships and in intimacy, isn't it a knowing that we're after? 
And God knows us. God knows our deepest secrets. He knows our deepest, and he still loves us. And this is where when we, when we take all of his attributes, actually his love is accentuated, not diminished. And so the fact that God knows the junk that's in my heart and he still loves me and he still died on the cross for me, wow. What love is that? We want to be careful of, of what God has limited himself of and whether the entire Godhood had, has limited him, themselves of that. Along with that, I think there is a struggle with God's character. We have um, the Holy Spirit saying, um, I'm not sure where, where we're at on your notes, but the quote, enforcing rules, especially in its more subtle expressions like responsibility and expectation, is a vain attempt to create certainty out of uncertainty. And contrary to what you might think, I have a great fondness for uncertainty. A statement like that should raise red flags. Because God is not uncertain. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Nothing catches God by surprise and there is no uncertainty in his character. Now the book does later say that nothing catches God by surprise and it makes a point of that. I'm not real sure how to resolve statements like this with those points in the book. There's... Um, some things that I think are, are counter to each other there. But God is not a God of uncertainty. He knows all things. He is omniscient. Praise God. See there, um, there's some issues with the Trinity. And I actually... I just focus on one thing. I don't want to spend a lot of time on the Trinity. I know a lot of people have spent a lot of time criticizing the book on the Trinity. Who of us really gets the Trinity and can, can put it into words? And so there's a lot of things that we could try to infer that he's thinking or saying, and, and I want to be careful of that and take some exact things that he's said and, so, and, and things that we know are not right scripturally. Um, in this case, he's talking about the Trinity, and the Trinity is talking about their relationship with each other. And there's a distinct effort to um, see the Trinity as one, and, and they are one God, and so I, I understand that. But at what point does that oneness separate? Because in, in, in God's word, we know that the Trinity is co comprised of three persons as one God. Now, you can spend all day thinking about what that means. But here's, here's a quote that, that I think is, lets us know one of the, the author's biases because we see it throughout the book. McKinsey, we have no concept, and this is God speaking, um, or the Holy Spirit, but one of the Godhead. McKinsey, we have no concept of final authority among us, only unity. We are in a circle of relationship, not a chain of command or great chain of being as your ancestors termed it. What you're seeing here is relationship without any overlay of power. 
We don't need power over the other because we are always looking out for the best. Hierarchy would make no sense among us. Actually, this is your problem, not ours. Two pages later, still discussing this. You humans are so lost and damaged that to you it is almost incomprehensible that relationship could exist apart from hierarchy. So you think that God must relate inside a hierarchy as you do, but we do not. And on first reading, that may sound like a great description of the oneness of God. But in Scripture, as, as we look at the Trinity and we look at the relationship, and we would call that the economic relationship of the, the members of the Trinity, how they relate and how they function, there is a specific and clear hierarchy listed in the Trinity in Scripture. And I know this is a, a finer point of theology, but theology matters. In Hebrews 10, 9 and 10, then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. Jesus is saying this to God the Father. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In 1 Corinthians 15, 28, when he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. John 14, 26, But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. And you see the Holy Spirit being sent by the Father. He goes out at the Father's will. In John six thirty eight, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And so we do see hierarchy in the Trinity, but they are one. It does not destroy their relationship. And, and probably the more concerning aspect of that is this idea that hierarchy and relationships on earth destroy relationship, which is absolutely not true. You can have relationship with your kids and still be their parent. You should love them. You should have relationship with them but there is a hierarchy, and it is God-ordained. In marriage, there is a hierarchy that is God-ordained, and it doesn't make one less than another, but it's a way of relating in relationship. And actually, as, as I've worked with many couples, the absence of hierarchy and the absence of understanding that really makes that relationship more difficult. And, and so we, we, we have to be careful where he's going with this. Now, now understand, he has something else in mind, I believe. He is coming from abuse. He is coming from a hierarchy that imposed itself without love. And so he is, I, I think he's specifically addressing that, but we have to be careful what we take of that because he, he was in a situation where, where hierarchy was abused and his parents abused them and there was sexual abuse and there were things that were sin and were awful that happened. But we must be careful to, to still have a right view of the Trinity and a right view of who God is. The other part of the Trinity that I just mentioned briefly there is there's some distinction issues, I think. He, he, I don't think he's a modalist, but at times the things he asserts border on modalism where God moves from one form to another. He's Jesus here and God the Father here and the Holy Spirit here. Um, and so you see, how can you really know how I feel? Mac asked, looking back into her eyes. Papa didn't answer. 
only looked down at their hands. His gaze followed hers, and for the first time, Mac noticed the scars on her wrists, like those he now assumed Jesus also had on his. Don't ever think that what my son chose to do didn't cost us dearly. Love always leaves a significant mark, she stated softly and gently. We were there together. Another quote, when we three spoke ourselves into human existence as the Son of God, we became fully human. We also chose to embrace all the limitations this entailed. Even though we have always been present in this created universe, we now became flesh and blood. And he's trying to, to, he's trying to show the unity of the Trinity there, but those statements lose the distinction. God the Father did not limit himself in the incarnation. He did not. He was still in control of the universe. For, for those 33 years, there, there was still somebody on watch. And, and he, he's trying to show, though, that, that it did hurt God the Father. And, and I appreciate that because the crucifixion, not only was Christ hanging there, but it was a, a terrible pain for God the Father and the Holy Spirit because they are one. And, and this is where how can they be one, but how can they be separate? But there is a distinction. Jesus was hanging on the cross not God the Father or the Holy Spirit. Now, they were there in the oneness of God, but they were not bodily there. And it's a, it's a, it's a finer distinction, but it's, it's, it's important in our understanding of the Trinity. I want to move on. Again, I'm not going to explain the Trinity to you either. So I, I respect that and that I can't. And so I, I, I know I'm treading on difficult territory there. The last point, actually I have two more, I guess, on, on a view of, of God. I'm very concerned about his view of Jesus on the cross and separation. Quote from the book, Mac was surprised. At the cross... Now wait, I thought you left him. You know, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It was a scripture that had often haunted Mac in the great sadness. You misunderstand the mystery there. Regardless of what he being Jesus felt at that moment, I never left him. I am deeply concerned at the idea that Jesus would feel something and act out of feelings and get it wrong. Jesus was fully God. He was perfect. As we understand redemption, as we understand what it meant for God, for Jesus to become sin as we are sin, to become a curse for us, as hard as it is for me to understand, and this is another one that I, I, I can't comprehend, but I know that at the moment that he paid for our sins, he was separated from God and God's wrath was poured on him and he took it and paid the price. Without that, there is no salvation, which is why this is such an important issue. Does that make sense? This is the gospel. And so to, to, to think that somehow Jesus was not separated by implication, I know he's not going there specifically, but by implication means that the penalty was not paid for our sins. 
as a reader, we need to be discerning about that. Again, I'm not trying to make an assessment of whether the author actually intended it to come across that way. I've, I've listened to interviews, and I'm not sure that that's, I, I think he would agree with me in what I just said, but the fact is the words of the book present that. In an interview, Young said, when Jesus became sin for us, so he would agree that Jesus became sin, Papa crawled inside of him. And I would challenge that that is just not biblical. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Those are the words of Christ. And it doesn't mean that God didn't love him. It didn't mean that God didn't care about what he was going through, and I know that's where the author was trying to go. It simply meant that at that moment, Christ bore the sins of the world and paid for all of our sins in one stroke and did have to endure the wrath and punishment for those sins. Because in Romans 6, 23, it says, the wages of sin is death. And those wages had to be paid. Keep moving. We're, we're going to run out, way out of time. I'm going to skip the, the thing on the Holy Spirit, um, speaking of how the Holy Spirit speaks. Because the next section really comes back to the same idea of the cross. And, and I think he's taking a, a theological standpoint that many take out there, but that I disagree with biblically. I think there's an unbiblical view of sin and redemption that is presented of sin and redemption. And I'll move through these um, pretty quickly. The book makes a strong assertion, not an assumption, but a strong assertion that God does not punish sin. Which is a view um, that C.C. Dodd would would present. Um, The quote from the book, I am not who you think I am, McKinsey. I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment, devouring you from the inside. It is not my purpose to punish it. It's my joy to cure it. And I agree it's his joy to cure it. And I agree sin does devour us from the inside out. But we know clearly from God's word that God will punish sin because it is an affront to his holiness. His justice demands that he deals with sin. He cannot ignore it in his character. Nahum 1-2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Romans 12.19, a verse that we used in talking about forgiveness, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Finally, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8, and 9, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. God does not enjoy punishing sin. He does not relish in it, but he will deal with sin. He must because he is holy.
Because he is loving, he hates it. He hates having to, to, to deal with it. Just as a parent with their kids. Second aspect of that is universalism. There is no distinction between lost men, or very little distinction between lost men and redeemed men. The distinction is made between those in relationship and those not in relationship. And there's some truth there. Coming to Christ and accepting him should mean relationship with Christ. When when we become sons and daughters of the king, that is a relationship. That is a vital relationship. But I want to just mention a couple quotes that, that show that that I believe he's coming from a universalist view. Again, I I heard him answer a question on this. Um, And he's defining universalism as something different. Um, In the book it says, I have followers that that were Muslim and were um, Mormon and were um, things like that. And and what he said was that in his original manuscript, the, the wording of that phrase was, I have followers who are Muslim and who are Mormon and who are these things. He said, but... My friends told me that people would get upset about that, so I changed it. Um, And and the reason is because, and and he's thinking from a missionary's perspective that people claim to be Muslim that aren't Muslim. He's speaking of a political sense. Although you can't lump Mormonism into that, you can't lump some of the others into that. And so in, in, in his interview, he clarified that he was not meaning that all paths lead to God, but yet in the, in the words that he chose, I, I think he misspoke, because that, that is not true of everyone, and very few of us are coming from a missionary perspective that would even understand that in a political sense. Um, but along with that are these other quotes that are, are something that should raise red flags. In Jesus, I have forgiven all humans for their sins against me but only some choose relationship. Think about that for a moment. We know that forgiveness from God to us means pardon. And it literally means a a letting go of the, the punishment for that sin and the consequences for that sin. And so to say, in Jesus I have forgiven all humans for their sins against me means that all human beings have been pardoned. So that is the viewpoint that is being presented. Next quote, you asked me what Jesus accomplished on the cross, so now listen to me carefully. Through his death and resurrection, I am now fully reconciled to the world, the whole world, Mac. I am telling you, all I am telling you is that reconciliation is a two-way street, and I have done my part totally, completely, finally. It is not the nature of love to force a relationship, but it is the nature of love to open the way. And one of the red flags I have with that is I am now fully reconciled to the world, the whole world. This viewpoint is a a classic statement of universalism. The idea that all people will go to heaven. That all people will will come to Christ eventually in some way and all people will go to heaven. And actually those statements require that because if they are pardoned, if they are reconciled, then they cannot be punished and they cannot be sent to hell. Do you understand where, what I mean by that? And, and that, that is something that is, is very specifically said, but we must be very careful of that. 
Now, again, there, there's truth in there. Um, Christ has done all that is needed for reconciliation. We, we don't need to add good works to it. His death on the cross is sufficient. And by a faith in Christ, which he would call relationship, by a faith in Christ, then that reconciliation is completed. But not until that faith in Christ. And in fact, we know from God's word that we cannot go to Christ on our own. He must draw us to himself. And so to leave it completely up to us at that point um, is, I think, a misunderstanding of Scripture. In John 1.12, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. One of the quotes he uses from Elul is actually a Christian universalist. And so that, that seems to be an influence in, in who he is. And again, any book we read, we need to look at their influences. And he has been influenced by universalism and, and the idea that everyone is redeemed, everyone is forgiven, which is why God doesn't punish sin. All these things go together. And so thus, by implication, there is no final penalty. But we know from God's word that that's not right. Revelation 20, 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's a number of, of other things there. We are out of time. Let me just highlight the other two. You can read them and look up the verses. There seems to be an unbiblical view of God's desire for our obedience And this is one where he actually presents truth, but I think limits it. It's just part of the truth. Um, his point, and I'll just summarize, is that we should do what is right because of our love relationship with God. Because we love God, we want to do what he wants, and, and so we, we do what he wants, rather than a list of rules and a list of do's and don'ts, which is how he was raised. And... That is the goal. We know that from John. We know that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. The goal is because of our love for God, we should follow him. But here's sort of the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. Even if I'm not feeling the love, I'm still required to obey him. My obedience is not conditioned on my love for God. That is the goal. That is the goal of relationship but he still expects me to obey him. But the goal is not to just obey a set of do's and don'ts. The goal is to build that love and relationship with God. The last one, um, throughout the book, there seems to be an underlying criticism of the church and biblical training. And in listening to his interviews, it also comes out in his interviews. Um, he's been hurt. He's been deeply wounded. And, and again, I will say a number of his criticisms of the church are probably true. Because we are hypocrites at times. Anyone not a hypocrite? We, we do sometimes hurt people. We do sin. And so my, 
my concern actually isn't with calling people to, to get past some of that, but the way that it's done is important. The, the way that it's done should be a way that is not condemning. I think he, 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 he crosses the line into judgmentalism with, with how he presents it. Um, judgmentalism isn't pointing out wrongs. That's okay to do. It's how we point out wrongs. It's looking down on somebody when we point out those wrongs. So there's a number of quotes there. That's just a, a running theme through the whole thing. That's just something to be aware of. You would expect that with his background, but we must remember that the church is the bride of Christ. And he speaks against institutionalized religion, and religion definitely can get so institutionalized that it means nothing. And it should be relationship. But God also says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And even the early church, it was done in the context of, of some sort of institution. I end with this thought. The verses there talk about the church being the bride of Christ. The church is precious to God. Precious in His sight. And I got to tell you, if I go out in the gym and hear someone standing up on the stage berating my wife, we will talk. Even if you're saying things that might be her weaknesses, because we all have weaknesses, it's not the right way to do it. We must be careful not to be judgmental. We must be careful in how we criticize. But on the other hand, I think it's good to hear some of those criticisms and say, how can we be better as a church? How can we be better on the church, as a church? At the end of your notes, I list some alternate resources. If you're struggling with, with tragedy, if you're struggling with where is God, um, there's some books there that also deal with the same issues um, from a variety of different perspectives that I would encourage you to pick up and read. But thank you for coming these three weeks, listening to pros and cons, to at least evaluate. But may we evaluate by God's word um, the truth that is there. The, some of you may read the shack. I know some of you are, are reading it now. And as long as we read it with discernment, that can be fine. Um, it's a book written by a man coming from a viewpoint. And we need to evaluate all things through the word of God. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, I pray that you would impress on us your character, your love, your justice, your holiness, who you are. And Lord, in all of our discussion of the finer points of theology and some major points of theology, may we not lose sight of the fact that you do want relationship with us, and you do love us, and you sent your son to die on the cross. May we not take that lightly. May we be your people. In your name, amen.